Hi, welcome to MedTech for Beginners, the place to come if you want to know more about how to bring new health and care innovations into the UK market. Hello everybody and welcome to today's MedTech for Beginners. My name is Kate Pym, Managing Director of PIMS Consultancy. And today I am speaking with Costa Filippo. Costa has many years experience of working to support businesses bringing MedTech to health and care in the UK. And I'd just like to introduce Costa and let him explain a bit of his background. Over to you, Costa. Hi, Kate, and hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me today, Kate. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. Just a little bit about me. I've got about 15 years experience working with medical technology companies until June last year, I worked for an organization called Medilink Midlands. And in those years, I supported a host of companies. And throughout the whole process, I learned a couple of things that I think are critical to a new company starting and even existing companies. Just a key, couple of key points that I think everyone should know about. So I'd like to share some of those with you and the listeners, Kate. So yeah, that would be Fantastic. Uh, we're all, all ears, Costa. Would you like to start with anything in particular? Kate, yeah, actually, I would. I think the one thing that for me is really, really important, and a lot of entrepreneurs actually overlook this um, factor, and that is that when you start a new business, and I wanted to get in on this early and, and mention this early, they don't get the right people around them. I think it's very, very important that if you're starting a new business, you must make sure that you've got the right people surrounding you. Um, and don't try and be all things to all men because you can't. And generally what happens is in this particular medical technology sector, you'll find the guy driving the business is generally a scientist or an inventor. And his skills can only go so far. So you've got to make sure and I think this is probably for me the most important thing because I've seen over the years where people have actually neglected to take account of this particular factor. Make sure that you surround yourself with the people who can actually give you the skills that you don't actually have. I can go into more detail if you like, Kate. Uh, yes. Well, how would you go about doing that? Because uh, somebody coming into medtech for the first time, they don't actually know what they don't know particularly yeah. and they don't know who they might need. So have you got some hints and tips on that one? Yeah, I think what you need to do is just make sure that you get into the community and, you know, generally try and identify an organization that'll give you the support that you need initially, um, one that's well connected. So I worked for Medilink for many years and they're really connected with the whole infrastructure. So that would be a very good starting point, become a member of Medilink. But there are a lot of other organizations as well that can give you that initial support, that initial entry. But Kate, I must also say that there are advisory organizations, companies like PIMS Consultancy, who can actually help you tremendously with this type of thing. I'm all saying that's in a similar space from you, Kate, except that you've got a, a lot more associates and so on. But I think if people connected to somebody like you, you'd be able to say to them, okay, these are the key things that you need to look at. These are the key people that you need to connect with um, when starting your business. And, and I think if somebody does that, they'll be surrounded by the right people who can actually give him the input, him or her, the input that they actually need at that point in time. 
Yeah, thank you. And we had a bit of a chat before we we started this recording. I think one of the points that you made about remembering this is a business and not a project, and I recognise where that comes from, because as you say, a lot of these people are potentially academics or scientists. (laughs) But if you'd like to enlarge on that slightly, that would be really helpful. Yeah, so I think the key thing that you need to remember is that a project is something that can carry on forever. A business has to actually become a commercial entity and become a profitable entity in its own right. And I think, and as you said, Kate, often with academics and scientists, that this is their, their pet project and this is their baby, and they, they're happy to carry on indefinitely to enhance the product and make it better. But actually, if you remember that it's a business, sooner or later you're going to have to get it to market. So I think very often people neglect to focus on the endpoint. The endpoint is that you've got to get a product to market. And so I've seen a couple of guys historically that have actually gone with iteration one and iteration two, and they're looking for more funding to get to the next iteration. But what they should actually be doing is saying, okay, let me get iteration one. Is it commercial? Is it viable? Yes, let me get it out to market. And then once I've got it out to market, then I can actually start funding the next phase of the development of the project. So I think one has to be very, very careful about that. And that if we're going to start something like this, we must make sure that the end game is that it's a profitable business and not a project. Totally agree. I actually had a conversation about minimum viable product getting its market and generating revenue rather than waiting for outcomes of trials and everything else. I think one of the misconceptions I quite often come across is that you have to have a nice approval before you can take something to market. I mean, absolutely, if you've got a pharmaceutical product, you do. You have to have nice approval because you have to get reimbursement. But if you've got a med tech product, you don't need nice approval and you can actually take it to market without that, which minimum viable product. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, Kate. And, and I think an, a nice approval is, is actually excellent. It helps tremendously, but it's not absolutely essential. I think when introducing a new product, something like a nice approval can come a little bit further down the line. But I think the initial focus must be of getting a viable product, one that works, <laughs> And that's commercially viable and where the market exists for it. And I think that's the key thing. Yes. But actually, but at the same time, as much as I'm saying you don't have to go to nice, you actually do have to have evidence that it works. It's all very well to say my new device um, is the best thing since sliced bread. It will it will get grandma up out of bed without her falling over, for example. But without any evidence, nobody's going to buy it. I agree, Kate, and and I think this is something that's often overlooked by people that I've come across in the past. They've got a fantastic technology or they have identified a product that they think will meet an unmet need, and it might, but it's got to be viable. And you can forget about getting anything to market if you don't have an evidence base. And that's probably one of the most critical things that you can do, and that's create an evidence base. Make sure that when you're actually looking to get the product to market, you can actually go to the buyer or the procurement people and say, this is what the product can do, and this is the backup. This is why it can do what it can do. 
And often people have come up with this invention. Kate, I think both of us know lots and lots of people who thought that their invention was going to save the world. And actually, it just went down the drain because they didn't create an evidence base for it. And when they did try and get an evidence base, they actually discovered that it, it didn't actually work. I've been working with a company recently that had a, a misting device for, and they identified asthma as one of the key areas that they could go for. But as we did our research and we're starting to the process of get, creating an evidence base, realized that the technology isn't absolutely ideal for asthma, but it might be suitable for something else. So creating that evidence base is and starting that process is really important because you identify where actually you can apply this particular technology and then create the evidence base to meet that particular need. Yes. Too many assumptions are made, Kate. Yeah, that though we do get a lot of assumptions along the way, absolutely. Yeah. And and throughout the years, I have uh, worked with a number of companies where, as you say, you start off with an initial idea that this is going to work in this arena, but then during the research and the customer discovery and the market investigation work, you actually find that you're possibly looking in the wrong direction. You could be looking somewhere that's um, potentially more protracted, more complex, and not as interested as yeah. another area. I don't know about you, but I do get a large number of people coming to me and saying, oh, we can sell this into primary care. I usually laugh at that one. I don't know. Do you have an opinion on selling into primary care? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think selling into the NHS is just really, really difficult. And I think people don't recognize that. And I think that's why it's so helpful for people when they actually come up with this particular idea to talk to people like you, because I think people like you and me can give them a quick reality check. You know, I think we both have examples of people trying to sell into the NHS and after a couple of years of being unsuccessful, have gone and sold it into the US market quite successfully. And I know a couple of companies have actually mm -hmm. taken that approach. I'd rather, rather than spend years trying to get into the NHS with no cash flow, rather try and get, I don't want to say a quick success because there's no quick success when it comes to medical technologies, but quicker success and better cash flow if you sell into foreign markets, particularly the US. So, you know, I know a couple of companies that have actually taken that route. So I think the other thing to say is with the NHS, I know about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when you and I first started talking, Kate, there were very few resources in terms of NHS market access. There are lots of resources now. So, you know, I would suggest that if somebody wants to access the NHS, they go on these various training courses that are available by the Academic Health Science Networks. There's a lot of training that's now available and support from the actual NHS, AHSNs. Um, you know, speaking to people, market access specialists, people like you, Kate, would be really, really helpful as well so that they can actually develop a market access strategy. It's not a case. A lot of people think it's a case of, well, I'll approach my local GP surgery or the local primary trust and I'm sure they'll accept my product. You know, it doesn't work like that. No, absolutely. And and one of the things that a lot of people aren't aware of is that actually GP practices aren't part of the NHS. They're private businesses yeah. who hold contracts with the NHS. And yeah. as a private business, if they buy anything off you, that's coming off their bottom line. So they're going to be actually a little bit more resistant, one might say, to, to spending that cash than maybe going to a secondary care trust or an integrated care system where 
you can <laughs> you've got larger budgets and you can actually look at the broader pr perspective of patient overall well-being and prevention as well as 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 well as treating the patient there and then um, sure. i think there's a big thing to be said about motivation for the people that are buying your product do you have any particular views on that because i think it depends what you're selling and who you're selling it to as to how you approach them and then and and identifying what motivates them i agree kate and that's why i think um, one shouldn't make any assumptions before you actually try and get product to market you know I, i've heard lots of guys saying you know i've been working with two or three clinicians and they love the product and they're really keen and they don't actually realize that the clinicians actually got nothing to do with the procurement process. Um, <laughs> and, and that although the clinician is keen and it does actually maybe solve a problem, I think it's a lot more complicated like that. And again, I think, you know, this, this whole issue of surrounding yourself with the right people, it, to me, is really critical. You don't know what you don't know. And very few people understand the whole procurement process not only with the NHS, but with private sector in healthcare mm -hmm. as well. And you shouldn't try and tackle this alone. You need to talk to specialist people. And there, there are paid professionals like yourselves out there, Kate, but there are also a lot of resources that are free um, that government has actually provided. You know, the AHSNs are one of them. And, you know, there, there are lots of resources out there that people can tap into and should tap into before they actually go too far with their project yes and i agree and even if you do understand procurement i like to think i understand it <laughs> um it doesn't it doesn't matter how much you understand it i find that actually if you're bringing a new product to market i try to map the procurement system for that product because every procurement is different because you don't know whether that particular product is going to have to go through different committees or different sign-offs. What internal sign-offs do you need? What validations do you need? Because there are so many stakeholders involved. It's not just a clinician yeah. and a procurement department. There may be involvement from pharmacy. There may be involvement from imaging. There may be in, uh, from the point-of-care testing team. It just goes on and on. And there are so many different areas that potentially need to sign off before they can even get to procurement, even if the clinician is biting your hand off and wanting exactly. to buy it. That's right. That's right, Kate. And, and that's why I think it's important that you engage with people like yourself in the private sector, but also from an NHS perspective, the Academic Health Science Networks, uh, UKRI, um, NIHR. I mean, here in Nottingham, the clinical engineering department at NUH has spun out a really good commercial entity called Cheetah. And yeah. they connected with the clinicians to a great extent. And they can help you get that perspective that you actually need in terms of developing an evidence base for your product. But there, there are lots of people out there. But, you know, I'm talking about the NHS itself trying to support you in getting your product into the NHS. Yeah. And, and I totally agree. Cheetah is an excellent organization. For those who are now Googling it, it is spelled C-H-E-A-T-A. -E 
can't remember what the abbreviations are for, but uh, that is actually based in uh, Nottingham University Hospital's campus and has direct links into Nottingham University Hospital. Another organisation that I have found to be very approachable and very flexible is the clinical, um, oh, CTSU, Clinical Trial Support Unit at Derby. Yeah, um, yeah, Derby Teaching Hospitals, they are really nimble and flexible. And being a CTSU rather than a CTU, which is a clinical trials unit, they're just quicker and, I have to be honest, cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I think the, the other thing about them, Kate, is they're also prepared to look at smaller clinical clinical trial projects as they well. Are. So, you know, if, if you're a new entrepreneur and you've got a new product to market, that would be a very, very good option. But there are also other people that you can approach, which you'll have in your network as well, Kate. Um, you know, private entities, commercial entities that are that that will support you tremendously. And I think organisations like these are never afraid to talk to you and have an initial discussion. And I think um, you know everybody thinks, if I'm going to talk to a commercial entity, the first you know, from, from the minute that I talk to them, they're going to be charging them. It's not like that. You know, people are happy to talk to you and tell you what's involved and give you an indication of what, what the implications are. Um, so I think for any new um, innovator, talk to as many of these organisations as you can. They're happy to talk to you. I totally agree. I mean, we always say the first consultation, half an hour at least, is free. I usually overrun by loads. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that that is totally free um, and quite often we end up with free follow-up sessions as well if people aren't ready I do like to and I'm sure the rest other people who do the same as me quite often talk about this other uh, consultants in this field that we identify with SMEs we're SMEs yeah 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 yeah, so we know how important money is and how hard it is to find. And so what we will do is we'll say, you're not ready to spend money with us at the moment. You need yeah. to do the following things first. So I do actually have a little collection of businesses that I work with sort of quietly on the side where I say, you're not ready to work with me yet. And I will give them homework and I'll say, well, I'll, we can have another conversation in X number of months. And if you've done your homework, I'll give you some more. <laughs> and Kate, that's why people like you are just so so valuable because you know you, you, people are getting a lot of free advice from you, and you signposting them to the right things to do, and and that way you're helping with their business process. You, you know, people like you and I ask the right questions, and I think very often if you have a pet project that's your baby, you tend to overestimate what you can do with a project and underestimate the implications of what. You can't do. And just speaking to outsiders is so, so healthy. Yeah, I agree. And to be honest, I have pet projects too. I have my own little babies that I get really excited about and they don't necessarily uh, get to the finishing post. So you have to practice what you preach and learn there is a time sometimes to step away even if they're things that I'm really enthusiastic about, like improving access to technologies for people living with dementia. I have a real thing about this, but my pet project just wasn't viable and I had to accept it and step away. And exactly. I think that's, that's a, a skill that we all have to learn in life. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's so true, Kate. And I think even, even with you, being as objective as you are, it was hard to step away from it because it's your baby. 
And I think very entrepreneur, very many entrepreneurs get actually get caught in this trap. It's their baby and they want to see the thing come to fruition. Sometimes it's just not viable. And it can meet an unmet need. It doesn't mean that it's going to be adopted. Exactly, exactly. And the bottom line is it could be the most holistic, kindest, best method of, of treating a patient uh, and could make people feel wonderful. But the bottom line is if nobody's going to buy it because it's too expensive or because the costs associated with the delivery are unbearable, they've got to find a budget to strip that money from to spend it on something else. Yeah, exactly. And if that money isn't there, it isn't there. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing, Kate, that I think of quite frequently is that we we so often don't ask the right questions um, as innovators. You know, for example, the product might be needed. It might meet an unmet need. But, you know, what are the benefits to the patient? There may be patient benefit, but what about the benefit to the system? As you said, if I take 10 pounds to pay for this device, it means I've got to take it out of somewhere else. Will the system allow that? Will this particular device be adopted by clinicians and patients alike? And does the system allow for that? You know, people don't think that there's a system pathway. And we may have a fantastic... I, I remember once a guy developed a surgical table where they could turn the patient the other way around, which would make it easier to have a knee replacement. The system wouldn't allow for that, and it was never adopted. Fantastic product wasn't adopted. And, and I can remember the guy was so disillusioned, and I can understand yeah. why. <laughs> because it was revolutionary. It was groundbreaking. It, it actually did all the right things. It, it reduced the, the recovery time. It reduced the operating time. But the system couldn't accommodate it. And I think very often we don't know things like that. That's why we need to do our homework very, yes. very carefully. And, people like you. So, and you. <laughs> so there's, there's a, there's a yeah. I, I can, I can think of many instances where that's happened. And, and one of the things that I also think is important for people to consider, sometimes spending money on, if, if you can do this research yourself, if you can engage with large numbers of clinicians and stakeholders, if you can identify who they are and then say, right, I'm going to speak to five of each type of stakeholder and get some opinions, fantastic. If you can't do that, if you don't have the skills or the network or the information that you need in order to do that, and you have to spend that money on somebody else, then sometimes spending that money and someone else coming back to you and saying, this is not a goer, is the best money that you can spend because other than that, you are spending a fortune taking a product to market. I agree, Kate. And and there's a saying that uh, this one friend of mine said to me once, if you're going to fail, fail fast. And, and I agree. And I think people are reluctant to spend money, but I think sometimes it's really, really critical. If I'm going to get an evidence base for my product and I've, if I'm going to know where my product is going to fit, Generally, you know, you said you can do the research and you can't really, you know, not when, not when it comes to healthcare and, and medical technologies. Generally, things like that, you have to pay to get the answer. Very often people develop a product and they find, find out later on that they actually went in the wrong direction. They didn't do their homework and they weren't prepared to pay someone. I know a guy that developed um, 
a, a particular device for use in, um, in a toilet environment, in a bathroom environment. Fantastic. But he didn't do his homework sufficiently to make sure that the product would be adopted. And he spent a fortune on a product that nobody really wanted. And, and that's the problem. You've got to spend the money in the right direction rather than developing the product further, rather spend on research and make sure that it's relevant, it meets a need, it can be adopted, and it's financially viable before you develop the product. I further. totally agree. Well, you and I, as we know, Costa, can, can talk for hours because uh, this is this is a subject that we have talked for hours yeah. on on many occasions. But I think we're coming to an end of today's session. It's been fantastic talking to you as always. Thank you, Kate. Uh, and um, could you just um, explain to the listeners, um, is there a way of getting hold of you if they wanted to speak to you? And how available are you to support people yourself at the moment? Sure. Um, what I didn't say earlier is that my real strength is in networking. So I don't actually um, do the actual specific consulting myself. I connect people to the right people like yourself and others in the network um, who can actually help the company get to the next stage of their, their development and help the business to develop further. Kate, I've got a LinkedIn profile. Um, it's Costa Filippo. I think there'll probably be some notes. You can probably give a link to my LinkedIn profile. People can feel free to contact me there. And really what I'll do is I'll sit down with you and try and establish what the issues are and where you are in the whole development of your product and who you need to be speaking to next. And and I'm happy to do that. Um, oh, free, bless obviously. you. So um, if you have any trouble getting hold of Costa, obviously I've... I've known Costa for many years, so you can always get hold of me through PIMS Consultancy Limited, which is www.pimsconsultancy.papa.yankee.mike.sierra.consultancy.co.uk. Thank you for listening. It's been great having your company today. And thank you again, Costa, for a really interesting and in-depth conversation on, on some pet projects of ours. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks a lot, a lot Costa. Bad. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it both interesting and useful. Click feel free to message us if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask or any requests for future interviewees or any particular aspects of MedTech that you'd like to know more about. We'd be happy to include them in future episodes. Our email address is info at pimsconsultancy.co.uk. That's info at Papa Yankee Mike Sierra consultancy.co.uk or you can find out more about this podcast by visiting pimsconsultancy.co.uk forward slash medtech podcast until the next time bye for now